0: and welcome to the final episode of the green room podcast for 2020 and what is coincidentally the 150th episode of the green room goddamn milestone i'm proud to talk about it uh and what better way to round out 2020 and the 150th episode than with some hollywood talent on this episode i am joined by australian film legend eric banner and director of the new film the dry rob connolly They were in Sydney this week to promote the new film, The Dry. Fans may be aware of the Jane Harper novel released in 2016. So the film is about federal agent Aaron Falk, played by Banner, who returns to his hometown after an absence of over 20 years to attend the funeral of his childhood friend, who allegedly killed his wife and child before taking his own life. When Falk reluctantly agrees to stay and investigate the crime, he opens up an old wound: the death of 17-year-old Ellie Deacon. Falk begins to suspect these two crimes, separated by decades, are connected, and yes, I read that off a screen. That is what the novel and film is about. Again, this is a, a big murder mystery It? It is tough to do a podcast about a Who Done movie with the lead star and director, but we somehow managed to make it work. So on this episode of The Green Room, uh, I sit down with Eric and Rob to talk about the film. Again, those may be familiar with Eric Banner and Rob Connolly. They worked together 13 years ago on a film called Romulus, My Father. They share an office together in Melbourne, and they've been looking to collaborate for years. Uh, And finally, The Dry came along, and uh, it was the perfect opportunity to get them together. So we talk about how this came together, uh, their fascination with the book. Rob finished this novel in one night. Uh, Filming in regional Victoria, uh, this is a, a, a great film. It's out on January 1st. Be sure to check it out. But before you do... Here is the 150th episode of The Green Room Podcast with Eric Banner and Rob Connolly. Check it out. All right, Eric, Rob, welcome to The Green Room Podcast. This is actually the 150th episode of the podcast, so I really appreciate you guys coming all the way here. Do we get to run through a banner? I I have one here. We can't see it, (laughs) but it's great. Um, Is is this the first time you guys have been able to, to leave Melbourne?
1: It is, yeah, yes. First, how first,
0: how yes. is the human interaction working for you guys? This is like the first face-to-face podcast I've done since March. Wow. wow. So this is quite odd. How are you guys feeling about
2: it? <laughs> amazing. <laughs> yeah, it was the screening last night, a thousand people, it's yeah. amazing. I would have thought, you know, there was a time maybe six months ago where you might've thought cinema was dead, you know? And the, and it's the opposite has happened. It's mm. opening, people are booking tickets, people are coming back to the cinema. It's, incredible.
0: Okay, well let's go back yeah. to the beginning because I know producer Bruna Papandrea called you Rob. What, so the book came out in 2016, yep. when did she call you?
2: It was before then, it was an unpublished manuscript
0: Right.
2: Okay. and she has a great eye for books. She's, you know, you think of Gone Girl, Big Little Lies, I mean she's, she reads a lot. Wild, she made from an from a autobiography mm. and uh, she sent me the unpublished manuscript. I read it uh, loved it, thought it was incredible, paid serious attention. She's a mate for over 20 years. But um, because of her judgement on you know, stuff that she reads, took it very seriously. But I just loved it. Read it that night, thought it was incredible. Then it got published very soon after. Mm. Became, and then I think they went away and there was optioning it and making it all happen. Got published became a massive bestseller. I mean, I kind of joked that luckily I got in then, because if it had come out and been a bestseller, it would have been David Fincher or someone directing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm sure it wasn't quote for quote, but the story goes: when she called you, she said, "Hey, um, this is a great book. You should read it. It's, we want to make it a film. It's going to be a huge success. It's a pretty big call to make on a phone call, isn't it?
2: Yeah, yeah. Look." She had sent me a book. I won't name what it was a few years before, and said, "Do you want to direct this?" And I was, you know, travelling, and I, said, oh, I'll read it. And I took a few weeks to read it, and I um, got back too late. And she'd given it to another director, and it became a massive success. I
0: think I know so, what. You're so
2: about. when she gave it to me, I took it really seriously.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, but we're mates. You know, we've been talking about trying to do something together for a long time, and. You know but all that aside like it's a page turner. i read it that night i mean i started at 8pm i finished in the morning i wanted to know you know what was going to happen two crimes all those amazing characters locations it's familiar i live in victoria mm. you know i grew up in the bush <laughs> you know so it's so many things and also it's political and it's got themes and it's got you know and jane harper's really comfortable with throwing out big ideas and themes so it kind of felt incredible that so many things i was interested in all kind of rolled up into one and then at the heart of it this amazing central character aaron fork
0: as a creative as you're reading that how quickly are you visualizing this film as you're reading this between what 8 p.m 7 a.m yeah this sounds weird when i say oh, does eric banner come into your thoughts at midnight
2: i wasn't thinking of any cast actually right uh, i i wasn't really I, the book i lost myself in the book So I wasn't reading the book imagining anything that I would do with it as a film, I just lost myself in it and I got to the end of it and it was like this would be an amazing film, as opposed to while I was reading thinking oh yeah I could do this, I could do that. Uh, It's only actually ever happened once before where a book's consuming like that, Um, Cormac McCarthy's The Road, you know I picked that up in Brisbane Airport, flew home, you know kept reading until the wee hours of the morning and of course John Hillcoat went on and made a film of that. but you know that I wanted to create that feeling in the cinema too—that at the end of the film you almost forg- have forgotten you're in a cinema. You know that's what happened with the book. Mm. You know I got to the end and it was like, "Wow,
0: incredible!" So fans of both your work would know you worked together in 2007, right, on *Romulus, My Father*, and you share an office in Melbourne. Firstly, right. how did that come about?
1: Uh, I had a small existing office at at the time, and I was needing to move, and Rob had moved his operation from from Sydney down to Melbourne, and we became mates on Romulus, my father, and just stayed in contact, and I said, well, why don't we get a place together, so I found this old abandoned warehouse that was full of pigeon poo and rats... (laughs) droppings and said don't actually don't come and look at it now just give me a few weeks and I'll ex- explain my vision for our space you know as as as, uh, as wanker's do yeah. and um and it's just been fantastic so we have separate companies we we share the space um and we just support each other and we bounce ideas off each other and we don't have the pressure of a corporate structure or anything like that to do things together and all that, so so it's kind of like a share house. It's like a mm. professional share house. And then if we find something that we want to collaborate on, we do. And it's just really low pressure. So it works more so as friends, um, and just literally, I'll, I'd so, someone drives me mad, I put the phone down, and Rob cancels me. And someone <laughs> drives Rob mad, he puts the phone. And I go, come on, mate, sit on the couch. What's going on? What's going on? Um, so a, 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 it has literally worked as much as well for life as it has has for work. Yeah. So, yeah.
0: how seriously were you guys collab- were trying to find something to collaborate on before the ride came along?
1: It's a good question, actually. I'm not we're sure. we were really loose about
0: it, I yeah,
2: think. Yeah, we kind like of I wanted it. There was, to. was no pressure. Yeah. yeah, but we hadn't really gone there. You know, it, it, I think a few things had come through, but well, I don't think we'd scrutinised
1: things in the same degree, had we? No, yeah. no. But this was just the penny dropped really quick. Mm. You know, literally. I remember being like at my across desk. Across the ca- Rob <laughs> came in and goes, "I'm thinking about." Um, thinking about uh, adapting uh, this Jane Harper novel, The Dry, and I've gone, The Dry, he's gone, yeah, have you heard of it? I go, I've read it. What'd you think? I loved it. And we just looked at each other. It was like a, like a blind date, you know? Yeah. Um, I think this... uh, he had for a moment that look of, do you think Robert will cast me? <laughs>
2: yeah, you're right.
0: I imagine as friends, that's a little tough, right? Like having to oh, that sounds cool. I wish I could be in that. What do you think? <laughs> that would be tough. Awkward? Yeah, Awkward. a little bit. No, is it, it tr- is it true you guys like had a lunch though where you you properly pitched this to Eric? No, look, it,
2: it literally I mentioned it and you would loved it. Yeah, and it was as simple as let's call Bruno and see yep. if we and call Bruno. Eric really loves it, and Bruno's like, oh my god, you're kidding me, mm. um, because Bruno's a massive fan of Eric and had met him years before and. Uh, I love how you describe it, Eric. That you know, some projects you can say to people, "Oh, it's a labour of love." like, my film Ballaby, seven years, nearly killed me to make. It. But this was like, Bruno gives me the book, I read it, it gets published. Eric reads it, he decides to be in it. Our companies become partners with Bruno. You know, it just kind of. I feel of like within within forward minutes,
1: forward. suddenly we were sitting down in our office with Caroline Pitcher. Yeah, from Film Victoria. From Film yeah. Victoria, you know, pitching her the idea, and it was suddenly we were just up yeah. and away. It, it happened. Really, and that was one of the joys of the project. It was almost like everyone saw the finished finished product in their mind, saw the potential for it, which is which is really really rare, particularly for Australian cinema, mm. something of this scale. So, yeah, there are, there are no tales of woe in terms of you know it took ten years to get from here to there. It was I mean obviously it was difficult once you, you get the grunt work going, but. Um, yeah, it was, it was pretty special in, in its speed of enthusiasm. Yeah. I was gonna
0: say that because, yeah. as you mentioned, some films can take over 10 years to put together. Yeah. Does it really just come down to enthusiasm of a quick turnaround?
1: This is a really unique opportunity because we had a book that was hugely successful. We have an amazing producer who has an incredible track record and then Rob is, is attached and so it's like, it's pretty rare for all those things to, 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 yeah. to fall into place. I mm. I think, um, don't you think, Rob? Yeah,
2: yeah. I think you might have one piece missing. You can actually put something together and then spend three years trying to find a lead actor. You know, and it's it needs an amazing actor to carry this film. He's the detective. It's it's a, you know, a damaged character. You know, it's got to be played with incredible complexity, but also it needs a leading man to drive this story in the same way that you know, all manner of detective genres need. So that could have taken years, it didn't. Um, The script was challenging and tricky, but actually, ultimately, I think it fell into place because the book was such a guiding principle. Mm. Uh, and, of course, you've got to remember, while we're doing all of this, the book is getting released in other territories around the world. and gro- So it's success in Australia. We're involved. And then it opens in America. It's a New York Times bestseller. It's opening in the UK. And Force of
1: Nature comes out, and that's a hit. That's right. Mm. Yeah. The
2: second book comes out. It's, so we we I, 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 reflecting on it. Probably that's what was happening. It was becoming massively successful as we were prepping it as well. So by the time we were financing it, the book was more successful than it was when, well, certainly when it was an unpublished manuscript. When I read it,
0: it seems crazy to think about. Like Jane Harper wrote the first draft of this in three months. You read the book in a night. You sign on, and that was all of what? Four years ago. Yeah. In total. I know. So here we, and we think, are now. Yeah. Yeah. One of the the best things I love about this film is obviously the two stories are being told. The flashbacks, of you as a child. What's going on there? when you're reading this book and trying to visualise how to put these flashbacks in, is that a pretty simple process or is it much more frustrating than you would think? It is tricky
2: but it is appealing to me when I look back through all of the films I've directed they they tend to have past and present like something like Balibo, there's two storylines kind of going side by mm. side and even in my kids film Paper Planes there's flashbacks to the mother and I think I've got a fascination with it in my work that um, you start realizing when you've done a few films and you start repeating yourself. Um, but I did love that in the book In the book it's interesting they they're kind of haphazardly used it's very clever how she uses them but they're not chronological the flashbacks. So you can have one flashing back to Ellie's you know body being discovered another one flashes to something later on or, and I talked to Jane Harper very early about actually in the film making them chronological. Um, so that it, they took the audience on a, on a journey as well, hand, hand in hand. My, my thinking there was that with a book, you can always flick back to something, mm. whereas in a film, you, you've passed the point, you can't jump back. And uh, I definitely think that when people read the book, they've done a very clever thing using italics and bold, so you know, oh, what happened there? You can go back 50 pages mm. and reread the past. Or, um, so it's like the non-linear experience of reading a book converted into the linear version of being able to um, sit in the cinema.
0: Yeah. Eric, I know you obviously love the book. Were you tied to the character of Aaron Falk, or were you happy to come on as a producer? Would you have played Grant, maybe? Or was it specifically, this is the guy I need to be in this film?
1: No, I really wanted to play Aaron. There was a point when I read the book where there's that, that beautiful sequence of scenes between Aaron and Gretchen when Aaron goes to Gretchen's farm and spends the afternoon there, and. They're on the balcony and they're having a drink, and then they end up inside, and there's this moment of like complete hope between the two characters when you know so much is so much damage has been done, and then it turns on a on a on a knife edge in an instant, and you're suddenly left kind of traumatized and heartbroken at the same time. And I, I remember just reading that and picturing being on set. With, right. with with an actress playing that scene and and these these sort of works are so hard to find as an actor so hard to find anywhere in the world um, so yes I immediately selfishly I mean my wife had put me onto to the book and said you need to read this I'm telling you they're going to make it into a film you've got to read it um, so I already I already had that in the back of my mind um, but obviously I would have been a part of the film in any shape or form if Rob had have wanted me to but. The ability to play Aaron and then I felt very protective of him, you know, as a fan of the book. Um, Rob and I shared literally the exact same vision for the film. So the collaboration side was just super, super easy. Um, And yeah, it was Aaron, I just thought would be a gift. Because it's
0: tough tough to go in depth into a murder mystery in a podcast because I know the scene you're talking about. But I can't Can't because that will give it away. But with with the book i know you guys have mentioned that um you kind of the idea was to to make sure that people are are turning the page or or watching this movie trying to get to the end to figure out who did it when you guys read the book did you know did you guess it before you got to the end
1: i didn't
0: no 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 neither well this is the thing i actually saw the movie first because i'm an idiot i watched the movie last week and i was like holy shit now i have to go read the book i i didn't guess it at all but as far as the film goes i think you nailed that perfect balance of keeping the guessing game going, going to the flashbacks just enough, and then when the ending comes like, oh, this is brilliant. That's what it is, yeah. Yeah,
2: Yeah, it's a trick that, there there was, um, someone early in my career said that the challenge in drama is to have something surprise an audience, but the minute it surprises you, you go, oh, of course. Mm. It's the only thing that could have happened. And audiences get frustrated if something's just a surprise. So the challenge in this genre is you have to be surprised, but then go back through the film, and go, oh, of course that, you know. So that's really hard to calibrate in an edit Mm. because there's so many places where you could just give things away. There's two crimes here. You've got a very smart audience out there Mm -hmm. who know this genre, and you want them to almost get to the end and go, ah, if I'd been a bit smarter, I could have solved it. So I
0: have another follow-up question, but I can't ask it because I'll give it away. There you go. The audience has to come (laughs) and make up their own mind. This is is a weird side note, but for people who have seen the trailer will know this, Bibi Betancourt, who plays Ellie Deacon in the film, her rendition of The Churches Under the Milky Way is haunting. Yeah. What was the decision behind getting this song in the film? Uh,
2: I work with the music supervisor, uh, Gemma Burns. She's one of the screen industry's hidden um, you know, secrets. She worked on The Slap with me and Paper Planes and she's great with music and Bibi Betancourt had been singing on set and I'd heard her singing and we tried another song in the film. And, um, you know, she comes from a musical family and she kind of, I think actually when we suggested Under the Milky Way to her, she'd be horrified that I'm saying this. I don't even think she knew the song. You know, it's a whole generational thing Mm. of that song, which was actually quite helpful because it made me think here's this massive classic if we can reimagine it. It could work for a generation that don't know it, because I think it's timeless. I think it's one of those songs has been used in films like Donnie Darko mm. and... Um, but incredibly, the lyrics just speak to the film. You know, it's Australian, it, it speaks of returning somewhere, of finding things that maybe weren't the things you thought you were looking for. and. Uh, and then the fact that Bebe was able to nail mm. it, in like her, you know, with this, you know, and, and then we could use it twice um, in the film.
1: Her version is so haunting. It's uh, yeah. similar but different to yeah. to the original. It's quite quite remarkable, actually. I remember the first time the trailer was cut and hearing it in, in situ it was like, oh, wow. This, yeah. this is really special.
2: And to have Steve
1: Kilby, you know,
2: sing it at the Sydney opening, you know, and, and perform it. This guy that wrote this song and perform it and then, You know, over the Sydney Harbour, it's pretty... uh, If it wasn't for the clouds, it would have been under the Milky Way. (laughs) But no, wonderful song.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of debate going on right now as well. Like, this brilliant film, Australian story by Australian people, filmed in Australia. There's obviously a lot of debate going on right now about more Australian works needing to be done in Australia. Produced, You know, Netflix are having conversations about potentially paying for local quotas this film I think is a perfect example of why we need to shine more light on Australian productions now more than ever you yeah. know, and there's a lot of American productions being done in Australia right now I think there's the new Thor's about to start filming yeah. Baz Luhrmann's Elvis is, is on the Gold Coast how yeah. important is it to, to you guys both as creatives that we not only shine a light on Australian works but do it here?
2: Yeah it's a really interesting question we, we kind of talk about this a lot there, there has to be a healthy balance in any healthiest creative ecosystem, you know, Australia can't become the, you know, the kind of backlot for American stuff, you know, I did speak to one actor who said that his last couple of jobs in Australia have been with an American accent, and mm. I think that's all, there's great things about this, you know, employment and opportunity for crews to upskill, and, but, We have to be, we just have to be really upfront. Like we, Australians love seeing Australian stories. You know, we're one of the biggest cinema going nations per capita. And this summer there's the Dry on Jam 1, there's Penguin Bloom, High Ground, Firestar. It's like awesome number of Australian films. I was at the exhibitors conference recently and it was so exciting. It's the first time I've heard this from Australian exhibitors, the independent exhibitors. We want more Australian films. How awesome is that? You know mm. they've had massive success. You know with rams, um, the dry is pre-selling really well. So I think, um, as we're seeing in other cultures post-COVID, local domestic stories are doing really, really well. So let's let's make sure we keep making them.
1: And we, we found yeah. an interesting thing on this on this film when it came to, to crewing the film that, you know, there were some big productions that were up and running in Australia at the time. And some of our crew had been offered very big, long running contracts with, with some of these productions who chose to say no and to come and work on our film for a much shorter period of time in the middle of nowhere on, on this project. <laughs> And that was really heartening to us. And it was a real show that, you know, like people are making life decisions with regards to their work as well. It's not just about, So, so there is a balance to be struck here that, you know, films like The Dry need to be able to get a crew of this standard. You know, we can't just have Every great cinematographer and every great production manager and art director on a massive film that's then not available to to a film like this. So that balance is is uh, is really something that needs to be considered. Yeah.
0: Do you yeah. think Hollywood still has that fascination with Australia that we all just live in the desert and there's kangaroos on every street? Is that still? a thing that Hollywood thinks goes on here?
1: Perhaps, but it's one of the things I loved about yeah. this book and one of the things that really excited me about about the adaptation was this is the Australia that 98% of Australians relate to. It's mm. regional. It's not the Outback. I love the Outback. The Outback is m- m- mystical and amazing and, and mysterious and and, and brutal. But regional Australia is, is is the Australia that most of us can understand and relate to and and I think it does a better job of depicting who we are as Australians um, and and to try and to try and get that across in in the casting in cinematography um, was really really important you know and and uh, I just think it's
2: yeah I think that's spot on you know like make an Australian film made by australians with australian actors you know there's a whole bunch of filmmakers we, we talk about like hyper australian cinema now <laughs> like big epic films we shot this large format big music a big actor like eric one of australia's biggest books make it for an australian audience first if it travels fantastic exactly but that's the key first yeah yeah, yeah. You, you were saying the other day which i thought was great how amazing the timing that we had our world premiere in horsham mm. where we filmed it that we then come to Melbourne, do it, the premiere in Pentridge, then here in Sydney on the harbour, in Australia first,
1: then on Jan 1, and let's see how it goes here for Australian audiences first. We're also at a point in our careers as well where, where we realise that, to be honest, films for, the, for a film to have a good chance of working internationally, it has to work in its home territory yeah. first. Right. And you can really make the mistake of going, well, this could play around the world, let's make this kind of like kind of generic. You know, no, that's not, that's not the pathway. Like, make it true, make it indigenous, make it true to, to our landscape, to our characters. Have it be successful here. Then yeah. have the world want it. You know, that's, that's its best chance, as Ooh. opposed to distilling it into something that you think, the, you know, will work better for a worldwide market, quote, quote, quote. That's th- really dangerous.
0: Do you think it helps or hinders the Australian industry then when these giant Hollywood productions are kind of jumping into into a Melbourne studio and taking over that room? Does it help our industry?
2: I think if you get the balance right, it can it can help. It's just getting the ba- the balance right. I mean, I've got crew that I work with that move really well between the two. Actually, they do a big film and they and then they come and work with us and on these bigger Australian films, but. It's, it's just something to keep an eye on, I think, you know, because any local screen industry in the world, in the face of the scale of films Hollywood makes, needs highly calibrated government support. We're very well supported in Australia. Mm. So, you know, we just keep an eye on, on films like this. Um, but you know really the proof is in reaching out to audiences audiences aren't, aren't really bothered by any of that. You know what I love about how Roadshow are releasing it they they're releasing this a week after Wonder Woman on just as many screens as Wonder Woman mm. so um, you know we're not going to die wondering. I love I love it. It's it's you know that terrifying excitement of bringing a film to an Australian audience this summer.
0: It's a pretty exciting way to, to bring we'll start 2021 January 1st this comes out. Yeah. Do you think cinema will come back in 2021. For sure. And by come back, I mean like everyone wanting to get back there, you know, because there's talk of of Warner releasing their whole 2021 slate on streaming services, but I don't think there's a better movie to kick off the cinema season than this.
2: Yeah, look, I'm an optimist. I love going to the cinema. We we Australians love going to the cinema. We've managed COVID well as a nation. um, Where, I mean, the big issue with the Warner, you know, HBO Max thing is, uh, it's a decision made for the domestic market in the United States of America. Right. And because of piracy and everything, they can't they can't continue to support putting their films out into that market that way. But, for example, Wonder Womans coming out in cinemas on Boxing Day and not on HBO Max here. Yeah. So, I'm really optimistic. Uh, the support we've had from Australian exhibition is incredible. Mm. I've had it all my career. You know, I can bring a little film to the market and get support, and now a big one. You know, there are exhibitors, small individuals who own cinemas, big cinema chains like Village. I mean, the support is overwhelming for the dry. And uh, they've done it really tough. They've been shut, they've done it tough, they've done great work to make uh, cinemas safe. Um And uh, I'm really, really excited. I'm, I'm optimistic. I reckon we like, we love going to the movies in summer too.
0: Come on. Well, guys, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm getting the wrap up, so we have to stop. Thanks um, very much. Thanks for coming on the podcast, guys. Appreciate it. Yeah. No, cheers. I'll see you. Bye. The film is called The Dry. It is out on the first of January next year be sure to head to the cinemas finally head back to the cinemas to check this one out and again big thanks to eric and rob for coming on the podcast and thank you for listening to the podcast 150 episodes down 2020 is over i'll see you in 2021 thanks for listening to make sure you go out and see the dry and if you like what you heard head over to the podcast.com.au to check out uh, previous episodes of the green room podcast as well as other shows including the take with Willie Mason, That Sucks, and Rewind with Steve Bell. Head over to thepodcast.com.au, share, subscribe, like, do all the things, and I'll see you in 2021.